Good morning. I want to thank you for being here, and I also want to thank all of you who either helped serve yesterday at that community baby shower or contributed some way. Thank you for helping us to show God's love to those in need, extend His love and His word. But right now, you're here this morning, and this is a time that we call a worship service, a worship service. It's a time that we gather together to bring praise, honor, and glory to God. We do that through singing the songs that we just did, and we do it now as God's word is taught and proclaimed. But maybe, maybe you haven't, if you haven't, then let me invite you to take a moment to really think about what we're doing here, what we're saying we're doing. What we say we believe is that there is a great God who is Lord of all the universe, of everything that there is. He's in charge of all of it. He's over all of it. And we're claiming that this great God who's in charge of everything, he actually cares about what's happening right now in this room, in this little place. Does God really care about what we're doing right now? Does he really care about what we do when we gather together to worship him? And according to his word, scripture, he does. He does care. Jesus today says that he has a zeal, a passion for the worship of the true God. And he responds very differently to different types of worship. He responds differently to types of worship that do not have results, that are fruitless as compared to faithful worship. Today we're in the Gospel of Mark chapter 11, verses 12 through 25. The story we're going to look at is also in Matthew 21 and in Luke 19. But as we've been going through Mark's gospel, talking about who is Jesus, we've been focused on how Mark presents Jesus to us. We're focused on the message of this book. I'm not really going to spend time trying to fit every little detail together about what one gospel says or another. There's many other people who've done a lot of good work in that. They look at Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They put everything in order. They explain things that look like contradictions but actually fit together. There is good information about that, but that's not really where our focus is. What we're doing is we're letting Mark's gospel speak to us. And here in Mark, this story of Jesus, he's going to have an interaction with a tree, a fig tree, and then he's going to go into the temple and drive people out of the temple. And as we've been studying Mark, if you've been here, there's a phrase we've been using called a very technical phrase, a Mark sandwich is what people say, where Mark starts a story, something else happens in the middle, and then he goes back to the first one. And yet again, we have another one of those here. Jesus has an interaction with a fig tree, he goes into the temple, and then we go back to that fig tree again. In this story, these two events that seem so different are tied together as Jesus is casting some judgment on the city of Jerusalem, the place where at this time the one true God was worshipped. By doing these two things, cursing this fig tree and clearing this temple, he is saying this is God's judgment on the fruitless worship in this place. He's saying in Jerusalem there was hypocritical and selfish worship, That would only lead to destruction. But he doesn't just leave us there because then he shares about what faithful worship is. He tells his disciples faithful worship is based on trust in him and is based on forgiveness. So if you're not already there, please turn your Bibles to the gospel of Mark chapter 11. So Mark the big 11. And then if you look at the little verse 12, Mark 11, starting in verse 12. And Once you're there, if you are able, I'd ask you to please stand to honor the reading of God's word, and you'll see this story that goes back and forth 
and we'll read together. I'm reading from the English Standard Version. So this is Mark 11, starting in verse 12. It says, On the following day, when they came from Bethany, he, Jesus, was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. Verse 15, they came to Jerusalem and he entered the temple. He began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. Verse 17, he was teaching them and saying to them, is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priest and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. Verse 20, they passed by in the morning and they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. Verse 22, Jesus answered them, have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive. And if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. Let's pray. Lord, as we come together to worship you, I pray that your word would teach us to worship you in the way you desire, not a fruitless worship that's hypocritical, that's selfish, that just leads to destruction, but no, God, may you build in us a faithful worship that is based on faith, on trust in you, that is based on the forgiveness that you have given us and that we can extend to others. God, I pray you would lead us to worship you in faithfulness. May we see what you desire. May we see your son Jesus clearly through your word today. It's in his name, the name of Jesus, that I pray. Amen. You may be seated. So I'm going to approach this passage by looking at this contrast between fruitless worship, worship that doesn't have results, that does not please God, as opposed to faithful worship. So let's start with that fruitless worship worship. What is fruitless worship? What is worship that doesn't have results, Jesus doesn't like? What is it? And he speaks to several different aspects of it. First, Jesus condemns unfruitful, hypocritical worship. Jesus condemns hypocritical worship. The story is taking place the very day after Jesus first came into Jerusalem as part of his triumphal entry, Palm Sunday. He came into great fanfare, and this is the very next day. He's on his way into the city again, and we have a beautiful moment of who Jesus is. 
Because while he was on earth, and he is still fully human, and since he was fully human on earth, he got hungry. And that's what we read in verse 12 of our text. Verse 12 says, the following day they came from the village of Bethany, they're heading toward Jerusalem, and he, Jesus, was hungry. And he sees a fig tree with leaves on it. And leaves on a fig tree normally signal to those who look at it that there's fruit on the tree. You can eat some of the figs. But when Jesus went to look at this tree, he didn't find anything on it. Verse 13 and 14, seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. The text makes it clear it's not the season for figs. It shouldn't have figs on it. But Jesus saw the leaves. He thought the leaves are there. There should be fruit. Maybe there would be little buds that you could eat, some early buds of the figs. But no, there was nothing there. And the contrast or the lesson that Mark is trying to teach us is that there was also nothing to the worship that was happening in Jerusalem. When Jesus goes to the temple, he's saying it's the same as that fig tree. It looks good but there is nothing to it. There, are, there is no lasting fruit. There are no results there. It looks impressive, but there's no prayer. There's no faithfulness to God. It may look good on the outside, but there is nothing useful. And in this, he's also referring to the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, God often used the idea of a fig tree and a fig tree without figs to symbolize where his people, the Israelites, have failed. Look what God says in Jeremiah chapter 8. He says, When I would gather them, my people, declares the Lord, there are no grapes on the vine, nor figs on the fig tree. Even the leaves are withered. What I gave them has passed away from them. In the same way Jesus looks at this tree, he sees no results, just as God was not seeing his people worship him faithfully. And so he curses the tree. And his disciples hear that. They're eyewitnesses to it so that they'll see what happens later to this tree. Now, some people have a lot of problem with Jesus doing it. Why is he attacking this poor tree here? But it's it's not from malice. He's not being vindictive. He's picturing God's judgment. Jesus cursing this tree represents his judgment on the faithlessness of the people of Israel, of Judah, of the Jewish nation, of God's Old Testament people. They were supposed to follow him but they weren't. There was no fruit. They looked good like this leafy tree. And from the distance, that's a good looking tree. But there was no substance to their faith. They did not live for God properly. They did not accurately represent him to the rest of the world. They were supposed to draw people closer to God, but there was nothing to their fruit. They had a showy, empty religion that was full of ritual and legalism. They did not worship God in true worship, righteousness, and prayer. Their lives had not been changed from the inside out. They were hypocrites, not true followers of God. And so Jesus curses this tree, but it's a picture of what's going to happen to God's people. And about 40 years after Jesus said this, this temple that he's about to go to would be destroyed, and this people would be scattered. Yet even still, we see Jesus' grace in this moment. He's cursing this tree, but he's not bringing God's judgment on any particular person. He's telling them, you have a chance here. This tree has been cursed. 
There is still time for the Jewish people to repent, to turn, to change when Jesus says these words. And us reading it today, we should take the lesson well. Our faith is also to bear fruit for God's glory. It's to have results in our lives, or we will be judged too. We have time to repent. For them, it looked like going to the temple and worshiping there. For us, it may look like coming here to church. It may look like giving money. It may look like singing the songs. It may look like getting baptized or doing any of the other things that are big that people can see. But doing all those things is no substitute for a changed heart, for living for God every day. One scholar, Danny Aiken, put it this way, fruitlessness now may result in fruitlessness forever. God has called us to live for him, to have results in our lives that, that please and honor him. We may think we're one thing, but we may be something else entirely. We may look religious, look good, but if you get close, you see that we are far from God. One pastor, uh, Charles Spurgeon, I like how he fleshed this out. He said, when I see someone who's a church member, when I hear him in prayer, then I expect to see in him holiness. I expect to see in this person the character, the image of Christ. I have a right to expect it because this man has solemnly avowed. He has said, I am a Christian. I am a partaker. I receive God's grace. So Spurgeon says, I should see holiness. He goes on to add, the more you profess, the more is expected of you. And if you do not yield it, then the more just the condemnation when you shall be left to stand forever withered by the curse of Christ. If we claim to follow God, if we play this part in public, but it doesn't make a difference, we are headed towards God's judgment. A hypocritical faith that does not bear fruit, that does not put holiness or godliness in our lives is condemned by Jesus. If we know him, he should make a difference in our lives and how we live. So ask yourself, does your faith make a difference? If Jesus looked at your faith, would he find fruit? But there's more problems with fruitless faith than just being a hypocrite because Jesus also condemns selfish worship. Fruitless worship is also selfish worship. Selfish worship. We see this in how Jesus approaches the temple when he gets there. Let me read verses 15 through 17 again. It says that they, being Jesus and his disciples, they came to Jerusalem. He entered the temple. He began to drive out those who sold, those who bought in the temple. He overturned the tables of the money changers, the seats of those who sold pigeons. He would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And then he explains in verse 17, he was teaching them and saying to them, is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. Jesus goes into this temple, the center of their religion at the time, and he sees in the outer court of the temple a whole lot of tables set up. These were tables that when people would come to worship God, they would be able to exchange some of their currency because in the temple they wanted to emphasize holiness to God, uh, faithfulness to God. They wanted to remove anything contaminated. It was a good desire, but their thought was, if you're going to buy something here in the temple, you have to buy it with pure money. You can't buy it with contaminated money. So they had tables where you could exchange your money to buy it there. 
They, it, it would be like um, sometimes if you're buying something online, you have to get a particular cryptocurrency or something to spend it there. So you had to exchange your currency there at the temple. There was also a lot of animals in the outer court of the temple, which in their faith, you needed to have an animal as your sacrifice. Here in particular, he talks about pigeons and doves, but there are probably other animals as well. It was an important ritual of their faith from the Old Testament. And Jesus followed these Old Testament rituals and commands. He followed it faithfully. He still drove these businesses out of the temple. I highlighted back in that verse 15 that drove out. It's the same language that was used to talk about Jesus driving demons out of people. The same fury he uses there. Why did Jesus do this? Did he just get angry in this moment? Was this a rash action? No, it doesn't seem that way. It seems this was something he had planned. If you look back, I didn't put this verse up there, but if you look back at verse 11, so the verse right before this one, he's in Jerusalem. It says he entered Jerusalem into the temple and he looked around at everything. So he had already seen all this was happening. He had a plan and a goal. He looked around, now he acts, and then he takes the time to explain what he's doing, why he has this zeal and passion for God's house. And he tells us that he had two problems with what's happening here in the temple, the way these people are worshiping him. The first problem that he has is their preference for business and money over worshiping God. They valued their business and making more money than giving God honor and praise. I talked about people would come to exchange their currency. Some uh, scholars said that those who were doing the exchanging may have taken 4 to 8% commission from these exchanges. They were getting money from it. In the same way, there were these animals here for sale, and you had to get their animals for the sacrifice. You had to get pure animals. Again, some, and I'm talking about like from that day, said that they would charge as much as 16 times more what the animal was worth for that sacrifice because you needed a pure animal. You had to buy their approved ones. I was thinking about that. It reminded me of internet companies now. You get internet and they say, you can use your own modem and router, but if you want the best service, you need to rent or buy our router or modem. That is much more expensive than you could get anywhere. It's the same thing going on here. Jewish literature of the day, they didn't like this. They said the, the priest and those in charge of this, they were exploiting the poor to make money. They didn't like what was happening here. And Jesus has the same thing to say. He uses the phrase den of robbers to describe what's happening here. That's actually a quote from the Old Testament in the book of Jeremiah. Jeremiah 7 says this, God speaking says, has this house, this temple, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your eyes? Behold, God says, I myself have seen it, declares the Lord. That's what Jesus does. He goes to this temple, he sees this, he calls it out, and he acts. He didn't like the place of worship of God being about gaining money. But that wasn't the only problem that he had with the temple. Because he also didn't like that prayer was being prevented. He didn't like that people weren't praying in the temple. It was supposed to be a temple, a place of worship. It promised one thing, but it delivered something else. It was supposed to be the place where people from all over the world could gather together to pray to God and to worship him. But there were some restrictions about how that worked. 
those who were not Jewish, those who had not converted to their faith, Gentiles, they were only allowed to worship God in the outer court of the temple, the outside area of the temple. And this is the very place where these tables to change money and all these animals are being kept. Jesus is saying the Jewish leaders, they've hindered the Gentiles from accessing God. They couldn't come to this place where they could pray. So that means they're desecrating the temple. It's not doing what it's supposed to be doing. Our text also told us that it seems like there's people who are carrying things through the temple, their merchandise, their wares, maybe as a shortcut to get from one place to another. This space that was supposed to be for praying, people are walking through with with anything that they have, blocking people from worshiping and praying. I want to try to paint the scene to you. This is an area, it's supposed to be where people are praying and worshiping, but instead there are thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of animals all in this area. And even more people than that, thousands, hundreds of thousands, maybe millions of people going through this area as well. I was trying to think of something combined, this idea of all these animals, all these people. And if you're not from this area, I I apologize, but most of us probably are. My mind went to the farm show. Ever been to the farm show? It's the event we have down in Harrisburg. And at that farm show, there are animals all over the place. And there are people all over the place. This past year, my wife and I, we took our daughter for the first time, and she was overwhelmed by just the noise and everything of it all. With all the animals and all the people, we thought about it later, that was probably the most people she had ever been around at that point in her life. She was completely overwhelmed. She said nothing for an hour <laughs> that we were there and just stared around at anyone. There were so many people and animals. Okay, so think about the farm show. And imagine you came here on Sunday morning. You came into this room, and it was the farm show in this room. Animals all over the place, people all over the place, all together right here. Let me ask you, could you worship God well in that room? Could you pray to God well? That's why Jesus is upset. It's supposed to be a place of worship and prayer. Instead, it's a farm show. And so Jesus is, by doing this, overturning these tables, trying to drive these animals out, he's attempting to restore the temple to its proper function, a place of prayer for all nations, not a place of business. That idea of a house of prayer is also from the Old Testament. The book of Isaiah, chapter 56, speaks of the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord, meaning the Gentiles. They want to minister to him. They want to love the name of the Lord, be his servants. God said, these people I will bring to my holy mountain. I will make them joyful in my house of prayer. For my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. This is what the temple was supposed to be, a place where everyone could come to God and worship him, a place to draw those who were not Jews, were not part of God's people, to come into a relationship with him. God wanted more and more people to come to him. But that was not the priority of the leaders there. The leaders there wanted more money. The leaders there wanted convenience to have the animals right there for people to buy for their sacrifice. They were selfish. They only cared about themselves. They missed what God said in this passage. Or let's look at the very next verse. Isaiah 56 verse 8 says, The Lord God who gathers the outcast of Israel also says, I will gather yet others to him besides those already gathered. He says, I've gathered the people of Israel, but I'm going to gather still more people to come and worship me. He will gather the Gentiles, the nations, gather all peoples to him. But when Jesus goes to the temple, 
That's not what he finds. He finds a place of ritual. He finds a place where there's no proclamation, there's no demonstration of the love of the one true God. And so he responds by trying to drive people out. I like how, again, Danny Aiken put it here. He said it was popularly believed. People thought that when the Messiah, the Savior, came, he would purge the temple of Gentiles. No Gentiles would ever be there again. But instead, Jesus comes. He cleanses the temple for Gentiles. He's trying to create a space for those people to worship God. Now, what Jesus is doing here is, in the grand scheme of things, just a small action here. It's only a temporary pushing people out of this space, but it's a symbol of the permanent change that's going to come through Jesus Christ. He will move dependence on, on ritual to instead open up a relationship for all people with him. Now, we don't have a physical temple. We don't have one place we have to go to worship God, but as the people of God, we worship him together as the church. And we should cautiously look at this example here. Because these people, these religious leaders, they probably thought they were honoring God. We need to have a place where people buy their animals to do their worship. We're making it convenient. And if we get a little money on the side, so be it there. But instead, they were just serving their own interest. And so we should think, when we come to worship God, am I interested in what's best for me? Or is our worship based on genuine prayer, faith, and trust? When we come here, do we come because I need to get something from what's happening today? Or do we think about, is this a place where everyone, all can come and worship God? And that type of message is sometimes rubs against us. For Jesus, that provoked some opposition. Look at verse 18. It says, the chief priest and the scribes, they heard it. They heard what Jesus was doing. And what do they want to do? They're seeking a way to destroy him. For they feared him because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. These are the people, the men who are in charge of this place, the ones who are supposed to make it a place where people worship God. And instead, the one they want to destroy, the one they want to get rid of, is Jesus, this one who, the person who's trying to make it pure, make it what God wants. They valued their status quo. They valued their wealth and their privilege more than worshiping God. In holiness and truth. And friends, it's a dangerous place to be. If we're comfortable, content, my life's good, can worship God, everything's great for me, when God is calling us instead to act and to live for him. In this place, though, it's showing us that the, the faith of God's people, the faith of the Jewish people at this time, it was too far gone. And God's judgment, with that picture of the fig tree is about, his judgment would have to come. These leaders, instead of fearing God, they're afraid of Jesus and his popularity. They fear they're losing their power and authority, and they'll have a confrontation with Jesus that we'll talk about next week. For now, though, Jesus' work is just this small-scale thing. He cleared out this area, and it may not even have been the whole area, because it was a, a huge area. It may have just been a, a part of it. But he does it to show this is what God wants, and then he leaves the temple. He retreats from public for the day to where he's staying outside the city. That's what verse 19 tells us. Now, before we move on, I want to take a minute, though, to talk about kind of what's happening here in this event, kind of a sidebar to our main discussion. And instead, look at what Jesus is doing here. He goes to this temple, and he forces all of these people out. 
And there are some Christians, or people who claim to be Christians at least, who base their whole identity on this story. They say, I need to make dramatic, bold, if it's necessary, violent means to tell people who God is and to, to make sure everybody knows who God is. And if anybody's against God, I need to force them out and get rid of them. I need harsh, aggressive tactics. That's what Jesus did in the temple. And yes, he's, he's doing a, a big action here, but most of the time, if he's using harsh words, it's for religious leaders or Pharisees. And this is the only time he acts like this. Most of the time, look at most of God's word. We've been through most of Mark. We haven't seen anything like this before. Most of the time, he's full of abundant patience and grace, even in the face of sin. So we should ask, what's so different now? Why does he act in such a big way this time when he didn't in other situations? I believe the answer is because here in the temple is where he sees false, fruitless worship among people who claim to know him, people who said they were the closest to God, but their worship did not have results. So this passage, I would say, is not a justification for using violence to accomplish a spiritual goal. Rather, it's an illustration of how seriously God takes worship and the high standard that he holds those who claim to know him. If we say we have faith in God, he holds us to a high standard. Again, Danny Aiken says, all wickedness is an abomination to our Lord, but as for religious wickedness in his name, he finds it especially detestable, and he will deal with it. That's what he's doing. He came to purify the temple, make it as holy as God is holy. He's going to replace the old with something new, and the Old Testament said this was going to happen. The prophet Malachi, the very last book we have in our Old Testament, talks about this happening right here. It says, the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He goes on and says, he will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. And this is interesting. He says he will purify the sons of Levi. Those were those priests. He says he's going to make what happens here pure. He will refine them like gold and silver. They will bring offerings of righteousness to the Lord. And then when he comes, then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old. And as in former years, Jesus comes to the temple. He is purifying it by exposing the sin and false worship that was happening there. And then at the end of this week, something we'll get to soon, he offers himself on the cross as the true, acceptable, pleasing sacrifice in this city. That's where he is going. But before we get there, we need to see the result of this faithless worship. The result of the faithless worship here in Jerusalem will ultimately be destruction. In the last two verses, we see this result. It's the very next morning they've left. They're on their way back into the city. And this fig tree that Jesus cursed has withered and dried to its roots. Look at verses 20 and 21. As they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. 
Peter remembered, said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree you cursed has withered. God's judgment had come. Again, this is an image that is not just from the New Testament, but from culture around us. If we see a tree that's dead, that's not a happy association for us. We think something bad has happened to this tree. If you see a picture where a tree's dead, you say, oh, the person's sad when they painted that, that picture. That's the image here. Judgment had come. This will be the first act of a conflict that Jesus will have with these religious leaders. We'll see it in the rest of chapter 11, all of chapter 12, and really chapter 13 is in many ways about the same thing. Jesus spends a lot of time critiquing these religious people. Their temple had failed, their worship was fruitless, they would soon be destroyed. They had a fruitless faith. They were selfish hypocrites. Their legalism did not have results that honored God. And if we steer in that kind of faith, if we have a faith that just looks good on the outside, that just lets, leads people to please us, if we have a faith that's about us and what's good for us and what's good for me, not for other people, if we have a faith that's based on legalism and rules rather than a relationship with God, that's a faith that will not satisfy us. I read a quote from a pastor named Alistair Begg. He said, uh, Beware confusing religious observances or rule-keeping self-righteousness with true fruit. Doing something religious, keeping rules, that's not true fruit. God's people are always in danger of an empty legalism that replaces a vibrant relationship. We must not look to do better, but to know Jesus more. Faith's not about doing more things to be better for God. It's about knowing Christ more. It's worshiping and resting in his faithfulness and who he is. This is what he's going to do in Jerusalem. He says, you're spending all this time making money, doing these sacrifice things, but what I'm going to do is I'm going to live perfectly, and then I'm going to die for you. I'm going to do the work on your behalf so that if you leave your sin, you're wrong behind, and instead trust in me, you will be saved. He says something about this in John chapter 15. He says, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. That's how you get results, abiding in Jesus, knowing him. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Nothing. Okay, I've spent a lot of time on this type of fruitless faith because that's what most of it is about, but Jesus doesn't leave us there. He instead talks about faithful worship of God. He tells us what faithful worship looks like, and that's what we'll look at now. What is faithful worship? He tells his disciples and us, first, that it is worship that is based on having trust in Jesus. Rather than being hypocritical or selfish, it's worship that is based on having trust in Jesus. To flesh this out, he points out that this type of faith is seen in how we pray, in how we approach God. Look at verses 22 and 23. Peter says, the fig tree's withered. Jesus says, have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. We can trust God to remove those things that hinder us bearing fruit. And he will remove whatever gets in the way of his mission. And he tells us whoever 
Ask God. Whoever believes or trusts that what he asked is going to happen, then he will see God work. If he does not doubt, he will see God work. And just like today, we use the idea of moving mountains to mean something that seems impossible. Jesus says the same thing. You can, when we pray, we trust God, he can move mountains. He'll use this image in other places. In Matthew 17, the disciples couldn't cast out a demon. So they asked Jesus, why could we not? And he says, because of your little faith, for truly I say to you, if you had faith like the grain of a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move. Nothing will be impossible for you. God can accomplish the impossible according to his will, his purposes, his goal, his glory, and we can be a part of that. But what we need is faith in him. Now, before we go on, I need to add some clarification here because there's some wrong ways we can twist that, and we'll talk about some others, but First of all, this doesn't mean that if we ask God something and it doesn't happen, it, me- it doesn't mean something's wrong with us. It doesn't mean that, well, my faith was lacking, that's why this thing didn't happen. Sometimes we can pray for something for years or even decades without seeing results. The wrong way to look at this passage is to think, oh, do I have enough faith? No, the way to look at it is to see our need for confidence in him, confidence and trust in Christ. James will write about asking God for wisdom. And this is what he says in James 1. If we're asking for wisdom, we should ask in faith with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like the wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. That person must not suppose he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. It's not about degrees of faith. Oh, if I had more, then I'd be good. It's are you doubting or are you trusting God? Are you confident in him? And we can be confident in Jesus. We have the faith in him if we know him. It gives us confidence and access to God. The book of Ephesians says that God saved us according to the eternal purpose he has realized in Christ Jesus, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. If we have confidence, trust that God is able to do what he says, then we can ask him for what we need. Look at verse 24. It says, Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. God knows what we need. He wants to give it to us. If we make a specific request, when we have an earnest desire that we've covered in faith and trust in God, if we're expecting Him to act, that is when prayer is successful. This is God's heart. He says in the book of Matthew to ask and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. He says, if you who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? Friends, we can ask God for what we need. We can pray for specific people, specific situations, and trust God to do what is best. Yes, he is the all-powerful Lord of the universe, but he wants to hear us. He wants to know us. He wants to help. Again, this isn't saying that we're guaranteed to get everything that we ask God for. James will again go on to tell us that if we pray, you ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. That's James 4.3. If we don't receive it, it's because we've asked wrongly to spend it on our own passions. 
It's not that he gives us everything that we want. He gives us what we need according to his will and purposes. And that's what prayer is. Pastor Spurgeon said, the prayers of God's people are but God's promises breathed out of living hearts. A faithful prayer is, God, you've said you're going to do this. This is what I need. So I'm giving your promise back to you. And we can have confidence in those requests if our lives are submitted to his will. In 1 John, John, who was here with Jesus, who heard Jesus say the words we're talking about today, he says, this is the confidence we have toward him. If we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we asked of him. He's telling us to have confidence in prayer, to approach God saying, God hears, he knows, he can ask, he is in charge, I'm trusting him to do what is right. This was another one where as I was prepping this message, I was like, we could spend so much time here. So let's reflect on it. I encourage you to read through the verses that are there, read through this passage and think about, do we rely on the great power of prayer? But to finish up though, faithful worship is more than just prayer. It's also worship that forgives like Jesus. Worship that forgives like Jesus. The value of our prayer depends on our state of mind. We need a forgiving spirit and heart. As he says in verse 25, when you, whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. He's telling us God does not honor prayers that come from an unforgiving heart. He tells us if we hold something against someone, a grudge, an unforgiven sin, we should forgive we should forgive so that our Heavenly Father may forgive us our trespasses, our offenses, our sin. Saying, if you have genuine faith in God, if you're worshiping Him well, it will lead you to forgive others. Some of our translations or versions may add a verse 26, which just kind of restates that principle in the negative. But we see that also in other places, like Matthew chapter 6 says, if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. If God has forgiven us, we will forgive others. And the truth is that everyone, a Gentile or someone who doesn't seem very religious at all, to the worst sinner, they can be forgiven. They're not forgiven because they're good, they're not forgiven because the wrong thing they did doesn't matter. No, they are able to be forgiven through the person and work of Jesus Christ. Jesus is telling his disciples, if you're going to worship me and, and you're going to hold on to bitterness, well, that's a sign that you really view yourself as the center of the universe rather than God. Again, we could spend more time here, but forgiveness like this, it doesn't mean that we forget what someone has done. It doesn't mean that we excuse wrong. It doesn't mean that there aren't consequences for someone sinning or wrong or hurting us. There should be. But it does mean that we trust God with the results, that we don't have to avenge ourselves, but that we can leave it to him to bring about his justice. And maybe it's not possible in every situation, but if it's possible, we should act to restore the relationship and again, leave justice in God's hands. I was reflecting on this about why this is tied into prayer because what it's, it's saying about whether I'm the one who has to do everything or whether I have confidence 
in God. And think about this. If you are angry or bitter to someone who hurt you or mistreated you in some ways, you could hold on to that anger and that hurt. But here's the thing, that does nothing to that other person. And maybe that other person doesn't even know you're holding on to it. It doesn't impact them. Or you can take that anger, bitterness, you can put it in God's hands. You can trust him. And God does something with it. He does one or two things with with the hurt that has happened to you. But one thing he does is he might pay for it himself. If that person who hurt you, if that person comes to genuine faith in Christ, then Jesus died for that hurt they did to you. Part of why Jesus died on the cross was because of what they did to you, was that sin, that wrong. Jesus paid for it. So that's one thing he does with it. Or if that person never comes to genuine faith in Christ, then they will pay for that wrong for all eternity. So you don't need to hold on to it. That doesn't do anything to that person. If you give it to God, then he'll either make them pay for it or he will pay for it himself. Both of those options are more effective than anything that you can do. And that's why forgiveness should be a guide of life for Christian people. Pastor J.C. Ryle says, God's free forgiveness will be our only title, the only thing we have that gets us eternal life in the world to come. And if that's true, then let us be forgiving during the few years that we are here upon earth. If our eternity is going to be all about the forgiveness that God got for us, let us be forgiving here. So let me ask, are you trapped in bitterness, unforgiveness? Maybe that's why your prayer or your worship is difficult. Should heed the Apostle Paul's words that as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. So here's the two types of worship that Christ presents to us. The one is this fruitless worship, a worship that doesn't have results that honor God. It's a worship that looks good. We do a lot of great things, but it's just showy. There's no substance to it. It's a worship that is selfish. It's about us. I do these things, things go well for me in the end. Jesus tells us that's a type of worship that only earns judgment. Think of that fig tree, a tree that was alive but now is dead. That's what that type of worship earns. Or or there's another type of worship. There's a type of worship that's based on trust and confidence in God. A type of worship we have access to if we leave sin behind and instead we believe, we trust in what Christ has done for us. We say, I'm not going to sin. Instead, I'm going to trust what Jesus did for me cross. My worship's not going to be about what I do, but about what he has done for me. If you've never done that, then I'd encourage you to talk to me or someone else about that today. Say, what does it look like to to not have that, that selfish approach to God, but instead to have faith and confidence and trust in him? I'd be happy to talk to you about it. Many others here would be happy to talk to you about that difference Christ can make. But it continues for us, that same trust and confidence we can still have in God every day. Coming to faith just this one-time decision we make, it makes a difference each and every day. We can still have trust in him, and then we can forgive like he has forgiven us. So have you placed your faith, your trust in him? Have you extended forgiveness to others? That's the type of worship he desires. That's the type of worship that he is worth because he, Jesus Christ alone, is worthy of our faithful worship.